Hey everyone, thank you for joining me again on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell and today we're sitting down with Dr. Lydia Jennings. Lydia is a soil scientist, a science communicator, an educator, and a long distance runner. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, of course, you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, the Outward Bound Canada Training Academy for Outdoor Professionals. With program locations across Canada that offer free programming to address skill gaps in the outdoor sector, the Training Academy is building the next generation of outdoor leaders. With a commitment to meaningful Indigenous representation, and by prioritizing BIPOC and 2S LGBTQ inclusion, the Academy is reimagining what the outdoor industry looks like. Check out their website to sign up for fall sessions, visit obctrainingacademy.ca, or find their partner link on our website. We also need to shout out our presenting sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large-format magazine celebrating mountain culture. Featuring beautiful, long-form storytelling from real people who love the outdoors, these are stories you sit with and savor. Each issue also contains stunning photography. These are magazines that you'll keep and you'll come back to. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Check them out at mountaingazette.com or find their partner link on our website. Lydia, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to join you and I'm excited for our conversation today. Me too. So let's jump right into it. You're originally from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I was born in Santa Cruz, California. My mom was working out there. And then I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Tewa lands for most of high school. And then I went to like three different colleges all over the place. And then eventually graduating from California State University, Monterey Bay in Monterey, California, and worked out there for a couple of years in Big Sur, California. Best, best job location ever. And then came out to Tucson, Arizona for grad school. And that's my life. We're going to talk about all of those stops in a minute. But first, I want to ask you, like, what are your first memories getting outside? Huh. So my first, like, memories of my own are definitely just being a kid in northern New Mexico and, like, running around in the garden with my dad and, like, chasing after dogs and, like, beautiful flowers in our family garden. My dad's an amazing gardener. But I think another part that I remember based on, like, photos and that triggering memories is seeing my baptism, which was in a river in Santa Cruz in Aptos Forest. And so when I lived out there, that was a place that like I always felt kinship and memory, like land memory with because of seeing those photos and hearing my mom tell me stories about those places. So I think for me, both of those are really important ways of knowing an ecosystem and connection. That's beautiful. Tell me one of your favorite trail memories. My favorite trail memory. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so hard. I think a more recent favorite trail memory is I'm, I'm right now living in North Carolina out in Durham. And I think for me, it's been such an exciting time to get to know it's such a different ecosystem for a desert kid. And just running around here with my dog and her like big goofy grin of like popping into streams and like looking at me and just like running beside me, like with her big happy eyes and then taking off and chasing squirrels. And I think that just kind of this reminder that exploring new places is fun for human and non-human kin alike. And that just relationship of us getting to do this together is, is one that I'm like constantly trying to make sure I capture for the future. I love that. I'm also a fur mom. So 
I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's like amazing. And it's amazing to get to explore so many places with your dog and, you know, build these mem- memories together. Yeah. And, but also knowing that our time together is so precious. And so uh, really making sure, like embracing each moment of that. So let's let's jump into your career. You're a scientist. Your PhD is in soil microbiology. So what what inspired that passion? Yeah, and I definitely think that like becoming a soil microbiologist was more by accident than intention. I started out like my undergraduate career, community college kid, really interested in like history and political science. And I started taking those classes and I actually like just didn't really like them (laughs) because I felt like a lot of the people in the courses just like wanted to hear themselves talk. And it was more about like who's allowed a speaker, which I feel like really makes sense for political science. So that was like a really like, okay, I don't like that. And then I took like a lot of American Indian studies courses. And it it was like, it was really weird for me because they were primarily taught by non-Indigenous people about like how to be Indian. And I was like, this is not aligned with like who I am. And I felt like I was often getting like interviewed for people as opposed to like learning. So I didn't like that. But when I started taking science courses, it was cool. Like it was people who are really nerdy like me and we'd go like on camping field trips for class and and I started to just understand like the plants and botany around me and the ecosystem processes. And I was like, this is my calling. So that's really what got me started into like studying science in general. And then I think just throughout my, I was originally, I was in Santa Cruz. And so I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. But as I was kind of going through my work, then I started going more to like water chemistry because not everyone can be, you know, whatever the career is. I was having a hard time identifying the careers in marine biology and also like, what would be something that I would be able to go back home with my family? Like I would always be away. And so then I started getting more into water chemistry and I worked for several years in Big Sur, like I think I mentioned, and that was really cool. But I also knew that I wanted to be closer to home. And so somehow, you know, through these meandering rivers is what I often call them of life's experiences. I came to soil science and, you know, soils are all around us. So I think it's kind of a complex area of what people do within soil science. And for me, it's been in mining reclamation and this broader topic of soil health and ecosystem health, which then also translates to like public health as well, because all of us are living on soils and having our food grown on soils and our water filtered by it. So it's such an overcompassing area to study that's been really exciting. I know that you you lecture on environmental justice and environmental racism, which it seems to be very misunderstood unless you come from a typically racialized community that has been directly impacted by some of these policy choices. So so help us educate, you know, how does policy disproportionately impact indigenous and racialized communities in terms of their home environments? Yeah. So, I mean, a big question here. So I'm going to try to break it down to some pieces. And I would say like I would say I I talk more about environmental justice and environmental racism is part of environmental justice or injustice. And it's again, like I started out as a soil scientist, but I think that policy background that I was learning about has kind of, I mean, policy influences so many things in our lives. And this is why like silo disciplines is really unrealistic because all of our lives are being influenced by the policies. So I just wanted to like start that caveat. (laughs) But I I think like a lot of the work and like what brought me to the work is when I was an undergrad and trying to figure out what I was going to do after, I saw that like so many of my friends from different indigenous communities were out like protesting and talking about environmental impacts that were happening in a way that like my non-indigenous counterparts just, it wasn't even on their radar. 
And I lived in a place that didn't have a big Black population. And so I, I can't speak to that. But I know that Black communities and Latino communities also feel those disproportionate impacts. And I, I want to make sure that I acknowledge that as well. But I do, I was in California and, and I also saw these conversations happening around like farm workers' rights and pesticides. And where I was at, we did a lot of work within farm working communities. I actually did this project with this group called Chamacos, which is the Center for the Health of Latino Farmers and Farm Working Families. And this is a cohort study. So they've been studying this group of women when they were pregnant for 20 years. And so when I came into this study, the kids were like 15, right? But like these women were pregnant, these farm working families were pregnant. And then they basically monitored the kids as they were growing. And found all of these like health disparities as a result of pesticide pollution so that all of us in America can have our salads and grapes and whatnot. And so I think that was like, oh, that's very similar to like seeing also my friends on the front lines of environmentally impacted communities who have all these high rates of cancer and they don't know why. And I have so many friends who've gone into the epidemiology to understand why their family members have gotten cancer. And so it's this really interesting piece of like being in communities that are on the front lines of these environmental impacts really shift your entire career of what you study. And it was, again, it was just like such a contrast from like being in classes and people are like, yeah, I think I want to do this. So I want to be a dolphin trainer, which like it's not to take away from that. So I think those are also beautiful intentions, but it's just understanding that there are different reasons that motivate people to go into the work that I found our communities of color are really disproportionately carrying this like much larger per purpose and burden within that scholarship. So I think, I'm sorry, I'm a really long-winded person here, but I think it's just really important that as we talk about this, we don't separate science from the policies of our science because science also has a long historical legacy of being weaponized against community of colors. So, you know, thinking about back in the day when they used to weigh Native American brain to say that we were less than human and let, like non-intelligent. And that has had real life impacts of us not being able to manage our own ecosystems that we are still dealing with today. So I think like, and that's again, Native American perspective. I also know there are many impacts that are also been very similar studies that have been done on Black communities to show that like they are not smart enough to be able to do X, Y, and Z that are so problematic, but like we are still pushing past today, which is wild in 2023, you know? And so I think in this, in this work that I do, it's really important that we are both reconciling the past and also knowing that our communities need data. We need scientists to be able, who are both like culturally embedded with this knowledge and expertise, but are also aware and have these lived experiences of these historical harms and contemporary harm to be able to change what that looks like. While also just talking about what that experience is like as someone who's navigating that. And it's, it's hard and it's confusing and you don't have mentorship who always understand. But by talking about that, it's a really important piece of this work. Yeah, it's a critical piece. And I was super excited to learn that like one of your research areas, one of your research priorities is indigenous data sovereignty, which is something that's meaningful to me, you know, in the academic spaces that I occupy at the Faculty of Native Studies at my university, but it's not something that's necessarily understood by others. So, so tell me what that means and why it's important. Yeah, so indigenous data sovereignty is this broader conversation that data about Indigenous people, about Indigenous people's lands, about them as a community and a collective level, that it has to have Indigenous stewardship of that data. So we talk a lot about environmental stewardship of Indigenous lands, but also like, what does that mean as we translate it to the digital ecosystems? 
And so far too often, research projects are done on native on native communities and on native people without indigenous people driving the questions, the methods, getting to review the findings. And that has really harmful effects, right? And so the most notorious example is the Havasupai case that happened at Arizona State University that basically said that like native people had higher rates of schizophrenia and it like went, this findings actually went against their own creation story. And the only reason why the community found out was because a, a native student from Havasupai happened to walk into that presentation, right? Can you imagine how like intense that must have been? So indigenous data sovereignty is this, this kind of like clap back to the larger data sovereignty movement, which is really emphasized by like open science that everyone should have accessibility to all data, which is I think an important piece of science as it's funded by public tax funding. People should have access to that science. But on the other hand, it also has to recognize that there are historical harms that have been done to communities that we are still understanding and Native people as sovereign nations. We should have the right to control what is a narrative that's being put out there about us um, and who has access to our data. Because we're also in this time and era of data mining. So people going through and looking at information about specific tribes, where in a time of cultural appropriation is still really rampant. How are people going and learning of native languages and then charging native people to learn their own languages, right? Like that actually has happened. Lakota Consortium, as an example, Lakota Language Consortium. So I think it's, again, it's really important that native people need data to make informed decisions for their communities. But we also have to be the ones who are driving with that. And so indigenous data sovereignty has to be led by indigenous people. And there's the other piece of indigenous data governance, and that's like any part of governance. It's ensuring that the communities themselves, when you know, Native people are not just like one big monolith. We are each many different tribal nations in the United States. That's 574 federally recognized tribes. There's also state recognized and unrecognized tribes. So it can get complicated. And that's why it's, this is the governance piece that's also part of Indigenous data sovereignty. And so some of the work that I do today is really this Indigenous data sovereignty has been applied a lot to genetic research, which makes sense. because That's where so much of the harm has happened. But I'm actually really interested in applying it to ecosystems, the ecosystem world as well. And so thinking indigenous data stewardship, both from the physical lands, but also moving that into the digital ecosystems as well. And so, you know, right now, a lot of people want to work with tribal nations because our communities globally have about 80 percent of the global biodiversity and that's in less than a quarter of the Earth's land base. But the, the relationships that we have with our ecosystems are also really important part of that. And how does that, how do those relationships translate into the data and how data is stored in these binary formats? And so that's some of the work that I do today, with, as well as it's like this general education about indigenous data sovereignty and this larger part of like indigenous peoples need to be part of the digital development and digital infrastructure development, which we often aren't because we're not many, there's not many indigenous you know, data scientists out there. And so again, this is something that like I didn't plan to kind of do. It was just something that I saw as gaps in my own educational work. You know, so much knowledge about Native communities and our belief systems, our cultural artifacts that were out there and publicly available that our old community members couldn't find, but, you know, companies could. And I'm like asking, why is that? And so, so much of it has been about just exploring curiosity and, and recognizing gaps. That's incredible. And I, and you know, something I've learned just through, you know, my, my research process, the privilege I've had to learn with the scholars I get to learn with is, is just how much the data 
becomes broken and flat when you sever it from the community and the storyteller and and the land from which it belongs. Yeah, and I think it's I mean, that's such a great part of it, like great element of this, right? Is that so often you know communities might give consent to do a research project for a specific purpose, but the way that data works is that it gets used and reused and shared in other ways that maybe community didn't agree to. And right now, there aren't a lot of protocols in place for communities to say, like, we don't want it used in that. We might share it because this information, because we think it's going to go to help restore this ecosystem. But now companies are privatizing these types of plants that we are saying and selling it for a profit in a way that, like, we never said that we are okay with. And so I think that those are just really important pieces of that. The other part is, like, we're in this very globalized economy. And so sometimes... This is something I've seen happen. A lot of people are looking at like drought tolerant seeds right now that communities, you know, we have different relations to seeds and I think non-Indigenous people might have. And so it's some communities view those seeds as their children and those kin. And so when people start doing experiments to see how drought tolerant they are and modifying them, well, that's like making a mutant child to someone, to some community members, you know? And then they get, start getting charged for these mutant childs. And so that's like brings up a lot of issues. And this is exactly like this piece of how it gets commodified and changed from the original intention that people don't have as much control over. And so I, I think like people are concerned about this word of control. But even if we look at our most traditional data systems of oral histories that many natives have always had, native communities have always had, many, you know, communities globally have always had, there have been certain data protocols associated with that of like who you tell stories to and when you tell stories you know some are like women to women stories only and men to men stories only some are summer or fall stories and so I think recognizing we've always had these types of authorities to control and when we share information and when we don't share information that need to continue on today and there are reasons why that and that maybe today our scientific metrics can't quite calculate what those are and we're, or we're still uncovering what those are but those are really important parts of of data at large. Absolutely. So going back, as you had said, your educational career and your professional career has brought you from New Mexico to Arizona to California. And now you're on the East Coast, incredibly different environments, ecosystems, climates, traditional territories. So how are you, how do you reorient yourself in outdoors in this variety of spaces? Yeah, you know, it's it's been really weird for me to be out here on the East Coast because I feel like everywhere else I've been, I've had family relations or like known people from my communities who have been in those spaces. And here in North Carolina, it's the first place like I don't know anyone in my lineage who's been out here. And it's it's weird I, because I like feel I felt that as soon as I came here, like I would walk around and the land just felt really numb to me. And it felt really cold. And I was like, yeah, I, I was not used to that. I'm so used to being in the Southwest. And it's like, I can feel like kinship with those mountains. And I feel like the prayer, I can feel the, I, I don't know how I can describe this, but like, I can feel the prayers that those mountains have had of my ancestors, of other indigenous people, the Santa Cruz, you know, my mom was there before me and I could feel that like memory within the land and like hear the stories. And so here, I, the first like month, I really struggled because I felt so disconnected. And I was telling my advisor who his tribe is from out here. He's from the Lumbee tribe. And I was telling him like, yeah, I'm just having a really hard time connecting. And like the forest feels really weird to me. And I, I don't know, like I, I, I've never had this feeling before. And he was like, 
And I was like, oh yeah, I know. I, was, and I, I also, I really missing this, the sky at night. I missing the moon. I didn't get to see that here because there's so many trees. Oh, they weren't like blooming at the time. But it was just, it was such a hard experience for me. And he was like, you know, it's funny you say that because like when I go to the Southwest, like I hate it. And I'm like, why would you hate the Southwest? You know, I'm all offended. And he was just like, I feel so exposed there. And I'm just like, I hear, I feel like, I feel like the trees hug me, but there I feel so exposed. And it was this really, I think, important realization about how ecosystems shape us and how we operate in the world. And that, you know, he really challenged me to, well, now you, like, you might not have built the relations of your ancestors here, but now it's a time for you to, like, build those relations, right? So that your ancestors will fill yourself here. And I was like, whoa, I hadn't thought about, like, that responsibility I have to build relations with non with our non-human kin here. And so it meant some time of like going around and learning about the plants and, and building those relationships and making offerings and prayers to the places here. And, you know, it's taken a couple of months, but I really am starting to feel that kinship in a way that I never have before. And also, I think just because I, I have this privilege of being able to work with tribal members out here and them sharing information that makes me appreciate and see the land in a way that I wasn't before. But I also want to recognize that part of the numbness I think that I felt is also this trauma embedded in the land. And so like where I live is really close to the Duke Forest. Today, it's a, a research forest. Before that, it was a tobacco plantation. And it definitely like, I think that is also a part of what I was feeling and talking about that with friends and, and learning that history, right? That, that's important for me to understand these places. Another place that I've gone running, I was like, oh, this is so beautiful. And I'm like, it's like, there's not, there's not much out here. Like, I wonder, like, I'm always, when I run, around, I'm like, what is the history of this place that I'm, I'm engaging with? Because I know the history can be so complex. And that one, you know, that was like the largest plantation in North Carolina that I was running through. And it was like wild to me because I felt that feeling of numbness was there. And it was wild to me as I'm going through these trails, there's like not any other people of color. And then I start seeing all the signage and how they talk about, like, I think the place it's called Stagwell, did have a good history of like the slaves that were there. But I also, as a Native person, I'm like, what about like the indigenous removal that made place for these plantations to happen? And so um, but in some ways, it almost like you feel double trauma on those landscapes, you know? And so I think that's like something I just am not used to experiencing those double traumas within the landscapes out here and in that process of building relationships and learning to be able to create my relationship in a way that the Southwest is like, I can feel that what they call like blood memory, I can feel like my ancestors' presence there. So it's just been quite a, quite a contrast. That's amazing. I can empathize with some of what you're saying. Just last week, my father and I were in Georgia and Alabama, and we did a number of things. But one of the things that we really made an important point to do was we walked the Selma Bridge. And, and it was a, I'm not going to say it's a good experience. It was a heavy experience and an important experience to to be in that space. Yeah. And isn't it like this is something I've been thinking deeply about as I've been, you know, doing some road trips throughout my time here on the East Coast. And I, I don't know, this podcast is all about BIPOC athletes, right? And so it's kind of, I think, a wild piece for me. Like, what is it like to travel to places and not think about both cultural histories, right? And not think about like, I don't, I don't know what that's like. And I think as an extra layer, because I'm also an environmental scientist, so I'm thinking about what is the environmental degradation, but also what is the cultural history of these places? You know, Durham, where I'm living, you know, they, had a, they have had a Black Wall Street 
in Wilmington, North Carolina, had a Black Wall Street run. That was like actually the place of the first one of the first insurrections that before January 6th happened. And so like learning about the like you often hear today, we often hear about the Tulsa Black Wall Street. And on my my road trip across the country from Arizona out to North Carolina, I stopped in Tulsa and went and visited the Black Wall Street. And they have this whole wall in there. If, if you get to go to the Greenwood Experience, I highly recommend it. But they have this whole wall in there called the Wall of Oppression. And it's heavy. It's heavy because history is heavy. And the oppression that communities of color and sometimes what we've done to one another, I think that they had a great part about how indigenous land removal made place for some of the business people of Black Wall Street, but also the House and Tribes had played. And so that our communities have also done harm to one another. But that wall of oppression, I think, was really powerful. And you left feeling heavy. But what I thought was also important is someone in, in the tour with us was saying, you know, this wall of oppression could apply to so many other parts of America. And like, we only hear about Black Wall Street because they're particularly wealthy. <laughs> Uh, from the profiting of indigenous lands and oil extraction. And so I think that part is just, you know, we travel with intention and to learn those pieces of our history. And I and I think today so many indigenous communities and black communities are recognizing that our liberation is within each other and supporting one another in a way that we have often historically been pitted against one another. And so by learning, like, I think that's an important responsibility of being out here and learning such different history of demographics that we I don't have as abundantly in the Southwest to go through it and fill that and also make amends for the ways that maybe our ancestors have also caused harm. No, you're absolutely right. And I feel that's something we talk about like in the community on the show. First of all, yes, we're never going to have the opportunity to travel and be in space and be a guest in space without having, in some cases, having to be mindful of those histories for our own personal safety because there's... Yeah. Those histories were not that long ago, but also something that I continually mindful of, how deep you have to dig to understand whose traditional lands you're on. And I love the Native Lands app because now it's at your fingertips. Because when you go to places and there is, there's no indication of whose space that is and, and whose, whose land you're a guest on. And so in your expertise, what advice do you have particularly for settler travelers, but, you know, for all travelers, like, how do you be a good guest in space when you're traveling with intention? Yeah, so I think the first thing is, is just to research. And and we do so much research of our trips of, like, the mileage and, like, the nearest town nearby. But I think a small additional step that you can do is, like, what is the history of this place? Like, where are the people that have lived here? And the Native Lands app is one tool. I think it's, it can sometimes be an incomplete tool. But I think that's a, a good starting place. What I love to do is I like to like look up podcasts that might be about that area. So when I came to Durham, I looked up like, what is the history of Durham? And I found this really great one about Black Wall Street, right? And so then I went and actually like listened to that and understood the different complexities. And I think it enhanced your experience, not just like the physical drive, but knowing the history of the peoples who have been there that help shape what that community is today. So I think that's a really powerful one. And you can often do that just like through Googling. That's something when I'm on road trips with friends, like they'll drive and I'll Google and tell them all about a little town that we're driving through that Wikipedia tells me. And I think that's just a great way to enhance that experience. The other part I think is if it's possible to visit a reservation, like a tribal cultural center, to definitely do that because it gives you, again, an indigenous informed perspective of the area, but also how to engage respectfully with the community. And I always say, like, I think it's so important to stop and buy indigenous foods or artwork or whatever in an area, um, both to support those small economies, but also like what are the flavors of the 
the indigenous peoples of that place. Like you might have some amazing food. <laughs> yeah. So I think that those are really important pieces of understanding that. And the last part, I think is just like also respect people codes and, and rules if they don't want you going to a certain area. It's really important that we, and I know this is going to be hard in the moment, but in, in drop our entitlement because often those rules are meant with, with intention and purpose. And you might not understand that as a visitor, but they do. There are reasons why people have rules. So yeah, I know that like seems really basic, but, and I think it's like one that somehow still seems to be really forgotten. So yeah, no. And I think we need to impress upon that time and time again, especially now, like in the Instagram age, like if community says this isn't a place we take pictures, then we don't take pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think like, again, because people are just driving through, they don't think it's like going to matter or have an impact, but like, they're just one of many. And, you know, we have cultural protocols, like as a native person, I know, like, if I were to not respect that, and someone from my community found out, like, I'm going to get a, a talking to and I think so many people maybe don't always have those kidships of responsibility. So I think that's just really important to to think about how would you want someone acting in your community? How do you be respectful of that? You know, being a good human is also just a, a general important role. So I hope that's like helpful in, in how I think about engaging. But really, it's like every place we're going, we're building relations, right? Whether with people or with our non-human relations. And I, I think that's just a really important part of travel and of being a good bold citizen. Something I wanted to ask you, and it's something that I had heard you say, and it made so much sense when I heard you say it, is that nations in the Southwest call nations in the East first contact tribes, which made absolute sense to me being in Western Canada, you know, nations in the North and in the West had contact much later. So I was wondering, like, is there additional nuance around around that reference? Yeah, I mean, I guess for those who haven't heard that terminology before, right, it's this recognition that tribes here in the East Coast, they were the first contact with the pilgrims and with colonizers and being such close proximity to like Washington and all of the political and physical impacts that had. And so I, I think for me, when I first came out here last year to the East Coast and I went down to the Lumbee community, but now working with, it was really important to one of the community leaders there to let me know, like, you know, we are a first contact tribe. And I think in the Southwest, we've been protected by the desert in a lot of ways from colonization. And so a lot of our communities still have their language intact, still have their kinship systems intact, still have their ecological relations intact. And it was a reminder for me out here in the East, they've been dealing with colonization so much longer than we have in the Southwest. That means that some of those pieces of language or relations or knowing parts of those history, they're trying to reclaim that. And it's a longer process of reclamation because it's been a longer process of, of colonial contact. And I think that sometimes that can be that people in the Southwest or other regions feel this like supremacy that like this community is not Indian enough. And so the, this leader really, you know, pivoted that to me of like, what would your people do if you were the people of the first contact and we were the ones who were the gatekeepers of culture? And I remember that hit me like a ton of bricks because I don't know what our people would do. And it really just made me feel with such deepness about how all of us are in this process of reclamation and reconnection to our ways of knowing and being with our ancestral knowledges. And so I think that that's a, a really important piece as, as all of our communities have such different histories and all of us are doing such, a, such important work that extends beyond us in the present. 
to really reclaim those relations. In terms of building relations, something you said that I, I, that I, I really stuck on was, you know, how running helps you decode land and build relationships with land and, and how, you know, your running practice and your academic and your personal practice, how they're all sort of braided together in this way. So talk to me about that. Yeah. You know, again, like never thought of being an academic. I got into running because my brother and my sister really were like, everyone in our family runs, you need to do it. And I was really into like ballet dancing at the time, like now it seems dumb. And somehow that's like the thing that has like actually been the most rooting and grounding. And I think like the best relationship with myself and today with my pup. And so a part of running, I think particularly running on trails is that you are getting this incredible opportunity to see so many different landscapes and places. And maybe you're not, and you're just in the same loop every day, but then you get to start to notice how different it looks each day and how different plants are coming out or which animals are revealing themselves to you. And so I think that that is part of, of this is building these relationships with landscapes. And as you start to understand them, then you start, you know, it's just like when you get to know a person, you like, oh, you have this like funny little quirk. And I find that really endearing. And like, oh, this is why this is like your tell when you're, when you're, when you have a, when you're up to something no good. And so I think it's kind of like learning that with the landscapes as well. That's kind of what I think about in terms of decoding them. But then when I started to get my scientific training, then I actually had the language to describe some of the ec- ecological processes that were happening or knowing the plants and knowing their sea germination or knowing certain erosion that was happening, the types of soil systems that we're seeing exposed. So I think that that has been an- another like layer of my understanding from just like this initial layer of knowing the ecosystem through running, but now also knowing it from a scientific perspective. And then I have that third layer of also being an indigenous woman. And like, especially in my homelands of understanding it from a cultural lens that I think is so, so powerful. And this is, again, why I recognize, recognize and encourage visitors to get to know a community through an indigenous cultural center, because they're kind of also giving you some, some things to look for through a cultural lens that then makes you just feel like you understand a place so much deeper beyond just the typical observation. And so that's how I think about looking and decoding the ecosystems mysteries and puzzles is through these three different lenses that my life has brought in. The first time that I, so the first, my first online introduction to you was through the video in 2020 in celebration of your graduation, you ran 50 miles for 50 indigenous scientists along the Arizona trail in celebration of your graduation that you didn't get to celebrate that milestone because of COVID closures. Tell me about this journey. Yeah. So as all of us have experienced, 2020 was really rough. And for myself, it was like getting ready to finish up my PhD journey. There was supposed to be, I think, 12 of us Indigenous women PhD students graduating. And like, we had actually like timed it so that we could all graduate together. And we're like, oh my God, it's going to be so badass. Like all of us in our regalia to do this together. And then COVID hit and a lot of our calculations, you know, our graduate students got canceled. And like, when you've been working on something for five and a half, six years, like, but didn't have a really big party. And I couldn't do that. And I was just personally heartbroken to not be able to do that visibility to my own community, but also to share that moment with my family and all the friends who have supported me through this crazy journey (laughs) that is a PhD. And so I wasn't running quite as much during my final year of my PhD journey. And this opportunity arose to get free coaching as a result. um, I think a lot of running organizations, you know, 2020 was also the murder of George Floyd. And I think a lot of people in the running industry are recognizing that running is white. (laughs) 
it's a white in terms of the media. And that particular Ian Sherman, one of his coaches, Scott Jones, was giving offering free training for an, a runner of color. And I happened to be the one that was selected. And so I'm like, okay, now I have this coach, like I should do something big. And I think like I was like, I want to do a hundred miler. That was what I thought at first, you know, but I didn't realize how like time intensive writing, finishing up my dissertation might be. So that was actually a little bit too big of a goal. But as I was thinking about it and I'm really active on like science Twitter. And so I also saw a lot of people and I was getting a lot of people reaching out to me about like, well, you're an indigenous scientist. Do you know anyone in X field or X, Y field? And I was getting out all the time. and like, this is not my job to track someone down. But it also made me recognize that like we don't have a list of like indigenous scientists and in different fields that people are doing. Like that was interesting to me. And so I was kind of ruminating on that as I was running out on like my mental health runs, you know. And then another part, I think, as the pandemic was going on was that when I was an undergrad, I supported myself through waitressing and bartending and just like all kinds of side hustles. And I was thinking a lot about these students who I would see that I knew undergrad students were posting like, I don't know if they'll finish school. Like, I don't know what this means. I can't support myself anymore, right? Because hospitality was closed. And so I was thinking too about this piece of like, I don't know what I would have done if I was in their shoes. I don't know if I would have finished my degree because I didn't have funding. And so I wanted to kind of put these three ideas together. And so what came about was this 50 mile, I reduced it down to 50 miles, <laughs> the 50 mile run. And I wanted to use each run to honor a different indigenous scientist. Initially, I thought indigenous scientists of Arizona, but it turns out a lot of tribes in Arizona don't have scientists. And so then I kind of expanded it out to more environmental scientists that I have had relations with, you know, like met at conferences or whose scholarship I was citing. And then I was expansive to a couple other people who I hadn't met, but I felt like represent really important work. So like Mary Golda Ross, who has passed away, but she was kind of the hidden figure as an indigenous mathematician who worked for NASA. And so I thought like she was someone who was really important to acknowledge and honor. And like the first native astronaut, I've met, I've met him at conferences, but like, you know, having those people who serve as really important role models as well. Um, it was also important to me to be more expansive of how we talk about the scientists. And so one of the people that I included was the traditional steward of the places I live. And she's like a linguist. And I think it was really important to, to include her because her poetry has always been what I feel like are the words that best describe the Kenoran desert. But like, we don't typically think of like linguists as scientists in, in STEM fields. And so it was really important for me to like be more expansive in, in how I identified scientists through this indigenous lens. Um, and so yeah, identified 50 indigenous scientists and I chose the route that I did that was along the Arizona Trail, but it's a specific section of four, five, and six because a lot of my dissertation work was around mining and mining reclamation. And this particular region was the proposed site of an active copper mine that's still being debated today. But it's also an area that mountain is very sacred to my tribe, as well as the Hopi and Sona Nation. And, and so because so much of my work wasn't about healing the land, I also did a part of my dissertation working about how indigenous people aren't consulted on the proposal of new mines or how we, they don't consider indigenous traditional ecological knowledges in the proposal of new mines, but they do consider traditional ecological knowledges in the reclamation process. So like heal the land and save us, but we don't want to listen to your knowledge when it comes to like making new mines. And so I thought that was like an important piece. And since I had studied this area so much through legal case studies and environmental assessment reports, I wanted to get to know this area through, I think, one of the most intimate ways for me, which is through running, right? And getting to know it physically through my footsteps, through smelling, through seeing it. 
And so that's why I chose that particular section. And then I also partnered with American Indian Science and Engineering Society. They have, because I wanted to also pay it forward and thinking about my waitressing experience and everything, pay it forward to future students and be able to maybe, maybe motivate them, much like these people who I'm honoring motivated me. And so I partnered with an ACES, American Indian Science and Engineering Society, to basically raise money that support ACES students. And that way I don't have to be in charge of managing the money, but I can make sure that they have a process to really support students who might be struggling during the pandemic. And so, yeah, all of it happened. I believe it was like March 11th in 2021. And it took maybe, I think, 11 and a half hours running, but 13 hours, 13 and a half hours total. It was my first time ever attempting that distance, the 50 miles. And it went well. I think I was well prepared. It was like the hottest day of March, like unusually hot. So I was like, the ancestors really want to test my faith today. And it was great because I had, my parents couldn't make it, unfortunately, because of COVID risk. But I had some friends come out and just support me and cheer me along the way and run with me. It worked out that Patagonia wanted to film it, who I'd already kind of have known through other projects. And so it became this really cool film. Which, you know, I was initially starting on a project route because I wanted to have my own way of celebrating and running felt like a really appropriate way to celebrate my PhD. But what has also been a, a beautiful ripple for impact of that is now like these students all over the country and all over the world have gotten to see that. And so it's been really powerful also to get messages from students who might be struggling like I was struggling or to think about how they create their own ceremony when something gets disrupted, like a graduation or a birthday, whatever, you know, how they're kind of creating their own ceremony as a celebration. And then what I think was like one of the most impactful part is to meet students at conferences now who actually benefited from the scholarship money. And then I'm getting emotional. But like in here, like if that impact to them, that's also been a piece that I never thought about. And getting to meet some of the people who I honored on the list that I didn't know prior now I'm getting to work with them. And so I think all of those have just actually made this little run is so, so huge and such a, so impactful into so much of the future work that I do as well. It's a, it's a beautiful film. It was a beautiful approach and, and such a wonderful way to celebrate. And, and I like how, you know, your approach to, to running these, these massive objectives, they really are huge, are celebratory. When you did the Boston Marathon 126, each mile was in celebration of a land back victory. Tell me about that one. Yeah. So this land, that the Boston Marathon, which I ran on behalf of Wings of America, Native Youth Running Program that brings high school students out to Boston. And I was one of their chaperones, but I was really motivated by seeing Jordan Marie Daniels, who actually, we're now it's Jordan Whitson, who actually was the film producer of the Patagonia film. And we had met prior to her being a film producer, but she ran the Boston Marathon in 2019 to honor missing and murdered Indigenous women. And actually, she just did it again in 2023. And I was really inspired by her run and how much attention it brought to missing and murdered Indigenous women. But I also felt like so often we talk about Indigenous people are talked about in this like disparity model and like deficit and that like, here are all the things that are wrong with Native people as opposed to talking about our celebration. And that was part of the 50 mile run. But then I had this opportunity to talk about, to go to Boston and do this. And I've heard so many people talking about land back, but a lot of, especially non-Indigenous people didn't really know what it is. And I, I think talk about it in this kind of like scared model of like, oh, the Natives are going to take all of our land back and kick us out, right? Which is like a very, actually like a very colonial perspective of doing that, of doing things. 
And since my work, some of my work has actually looked at kind of land back initiatives and biodiversity, I wanted to explore, I wanted to, I guess, honor and recognize how much land back has already been in process, but also when communities get land back, what are they doing with it? And who is giving the land back? And there's such a diversity of reasons why. And I said about like doing research and then I picked my 26 miles and it was, I wore a land back skirt when I ran the Boston Marathon, but it was like pretty exciting. It was quite a, it's interesting to be in Boston on Patriot's Day, kind of celebrating something that's like very anti-Patriot. And some people in my, so I guess I should say I had a skirt that had land back and it had a handprint in the front and that was gifted to me by Verna Volkner from Native Women Running. And then on the back of a t-shirt, I had the 26 miles that I was running for. And I had kind of a little description about what land back meant, but then also the different tribes, the amount of acres, what state the tribes were in, and the year the land was returned. So it can also be a little educational in that process. And I thought about each of those miles as I was running. And I think that's also important. The last mile was dedicated to the Mashpee Wambi. We, as with the Wings of America program, actually got to meet with them the day before and get a blessing for our run. And so I, that was like especially meaningful because that last mile was like running through Boylston Street, right? And so I think I held all of that with me as I went and pursued this run. And like, I haven't run a road marathon in a really long time. And so it was had, like the last mile, the last couple miles were heavy and hard. And I was like very emotional, but it was it's such an incredible experience to be able to run. I had a lot of people asking me as they were like running the marathon, what is land back? You know, I had some people like cheering land back and other people booing me. Which, you know, which was like an interesting piece because like lots of people are Boston running for different purposes and having family members faces on them. Some people are running with their, their country flag, you know? So I think it's, it's important to recognize our many reasons, but running the streets of Boston on Patriots Day and alert was definitely amazing. I think the most important part for me was doing a last strip through Boylston and hearing because at the Boston Marathon, people are like five deep back outside cheering, right? And I just heard people like yelling waves of land back to me as I was crossing the finish line. And that was like, I think a kind of heartfelt moment that I'll never forget. And I was definitely crying when I got to the finish. And I then went on Twitter and just kind of tweeted along all the, about all the cases that I was talking about. I had articles attached to different examples of land back. And what I think was powerful is it's such a range of people. Sometimes it's private individuals who are giving land back. In one case, it was because they didn't want to like pay state taxes. And that was their ultimate FEO, which I'm like, thank you. In other cases, it's, you know, government age or it's, it's state agencies and nonprofits that are working with tribes to kind of do co-management, but having the tribes lead that process. Other examples, it's private corporations who are giving land back. Um, sometimes for tax breaks, sometimes because of good intentions, it's sometimes churches. Like there's such a range of people who are doing land back. I think what was more important to me was looking at as communities get land back, how they uh, revitalize language programs, food systems youth education programs, like all of those are so powerful as we as Native nations reestablish our relationships with ecosystem. And it can be anything from like half an acre to 18,000 acres, right? I think that range is really powerful as well. So the final part in that long Twitter thread, which I can send to you if you're interested, um, was also looking at there are some recommendations for people if they want to do land back, like as a private land owner that people are, are doing. And so I thought, you know, just giving that information for people so I don't feel fearful of land back, but also understand like how it's land back isn't just great for a nation. It's, it's good for our larger ecological communities as well. Yeah, I will. I'll definitely ask you to send that to me. I remember seeing it when you first posted it. 
but so that I can put that in the show notes for everyone to access. Because yes, it's incredible information. One of the things that you work on as a runner, as someone who is in that entire community is like erasing the stereotype of who is a runner. And and why is that important to you? Yeah, I mean, I think at, at the base, it comes from, you know, lack of representation. That's always been there growing up. I think I had two models of lucky runners were it was like Flojo and it was like skinny white athletes that were very unapproachable. And then there are people that I met in local races, but like it often didn't feel like I fit that demographic. And I would say like I'm probably in my in terms of like my body appearance, I was probably more typical than some of my community members, right? But like unfortunately that that can be a very harmful messaging. I think particularly as like I'm getting older and my body is changing, I'm like, huh, I, even now like the, the the marketing doesn't really hit me, right? Like they don't have people with my booty shape or my boob, you know, <laughs> that I represented in the modeling or in the marketing. So I think for me, like those are, that's a really important part, but it's also just ensuring that like Native people have always been runners. We have very, very long ancestral traditions of running. Um, we've been run for many different types of reasons, competitive, for ceremony for communication, so many different reasons. But like the way that we talk about running is strictly on this like hyper-competitive basis that is actually really alienating to a lot of running companies' marketing. And so I think talking about running through a different lens, and for me, it's really about connection to ecosystem, which I think is a great way to draw in a lot of runners to care about climate change and other pieces is important. But also just making sure that like the youth in our communities, my tribe, the Pasquayaki tribe, like we make sure that our youth know that there is space for them here and that like whether you're fast or slow, getting your chubby, like you're all welcome, you know, and that we're always going to have people who are here to support you because for me, running is not also just about this competitiveness. It's also about my mental health. And I think that, again, media will tell us about how all these negative pieces of Native communities and like high suicide rate rates as well. <laughs> that like I would meet people on a run. They're like, "Oh, Native Americans have a high alcoholism and suicide rates, right?" And you're like, "Cool, my name's Lydia." Seriously, Jesus. yeah, this is why I know Native. Where I saw your tribal National Geographic, like seriously, those are the kinds of conversations I meet with people running. And so I'd be like, "Well, actually, let's talk about that." So I, those are important for education pieces. I also think while building relationships through running, and now people actually know a Native person that they could talk to. And I'm an educator, so I think like. I have a higher threshold for having some of these difficult conversations and how to talk about it in a way that might change people's mind or at least make them think deeply without like getting super offended, which sometimes I still do. I'm human. But I think that those are also important pieces is going through these hard conversations in ways that our future generations and students won't have to. What what advice do you have for, I mean, we're coming into race season for for bikes and for running. What advice do you have for organizers to be creating more space at starting lines and structured events for individuals who, you know, wouldn't be seen in the marketing for these sports? Yeah. So a couple. So first, like, I think I want to give attention to one race that I was involved with. And that's called, it's today called the Mid-South Gravel 100. They used to be called the Land Rush 100, a gravel bike race. But a Land Rush, for those of you who aren't aware, was a really important piece of Oklahoma history where basically Native people removed from land and then settlers came and rushed land to claim it for their own homestead. And so the, the organizers at the time didn't, I don't think knew this is why researching history of a place is so important, right? 
And they had this race until members of the Osage Nation that were like, hey, this is really like racist and this is why. And so the organizers actually took a couple of years off to educate themselves and then went back and they made a whole booklet for the race about why they changed the name, the history of the tribes that are on the, in the race or that the, that the race goes through. They created a bunch of affinity scholarships and spaces. So for Black, Indigenous, non-binary, you know, more body inclusive spaces, which I think is really cool. And so I, I think like that's an example of someone we often hear like, oh, people are telling us and like they're just being haters. But actually, I think someone who, race directors who took the time to take that information in and create meaningful change. And they've continued to do that. They're not just doing it one year. Every year they're trying to build up so that they're not tokenizing the community. Right. And they're actually, I feel like, building long-term relationships. So I think I really want to give kudos to that because that's a hard criticism, but they have turned it out in a really beautiful way. I think that you also see the Running on Native Lands initiative that's working with different race organizations and companies to one, like not just do a land acknowledgement, but also create scholarships for Native runners to run there, create meaningful relationships with the Native peoples who the the races take place on. So sometimes that means certain charities. I was involved with the run of Yadika Fields when he did Western States last year, the first Native runner to do the Western States 100. And he actually did a poster for the Western States 100 race. And the proceeds in that poster went to the Washoe tribe. So that's like another really cool piece that people are doing. I think, but, but I think basically, you know, even connecting wherever you're at, connecting with the tribal nations there, making sure that you are paying people to give that land acknowledgement and land blessing. I think including the land of who you're running with or on. I have to say that we're running with because we're not suppressing to the land, but making sure that your community of runners are aware of that and, and aware of where they can learn more. I think those are some, some of the basic places that we can begin. And then all these other models, I, I kind of started up high level and I should have maybe started at the basic, but all of those are other different levels at which you can engage. Even just having hiring indigenous artists to make your um, award for your race, I think is a really powerful place to begin. Yeah, I love that. So what's next for you? What you're in Durham. I couldn't be there because I would be poor because of the bookstore. Hey, which bookstore are we talking about? I'm talking about the Duke bookstore. Okay. Duke University bookstore. I had to turn off their notifications for when <laughs> they were having book sales because I would I would spend far too much money. Yeah, they do have some amazing books here. It's been really fun to be here at Duke University. It's such a different environment and um, it's such an supportive environment. So I really enjoyed my time here. I will eventually be going back to Arizona, but I'm working here on a project with the Lumbee tribe. And so one of the, one of the people I, I honored in my 50 mile run was Dr. Ryan Emanuel, who sits on the Lumbee Nation. He's a hydroecologist and I'm actually now working with him in his community. So that's been a really cool full circle of that 50 mile run. And, but we're looking on different like soil health metrics and adjacent to natural gas pipelines. So definitely still having this environmental justice piece of the work and indigenous people piece of the work. And yeah, working with some students here. And then my plan is to go back to Arizona and, you know, transition into faculty, at least at this time, which is exciting. I'm definitely ready for it. In terms of the running piece, I'm not sure, you know, I, I think I did these really big runs. Of, I did Boston. I did the 150 mile run for Will Run for Soil, which is another film project that will be coming out hopefully next year. And then I did Boston Marathon. And so that were three really big runs. 
for others and for external purposes, I think. And I, I had to just kind of take the last year off and, and rebuild running for my own self and my own relationship again. Like, why do I love it? And not for public consumption, but for me. And so my dog had really been teaching me a lot to just run for joy and run for building relationship with place. And so that's what I've been doing. Um, I did do my first race in a long time this last weekend. And it was fun, but I'm definitely, I definitely want to stick to, to, to trail racing. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that just that part of my life is still in flux. I'm also getting really into kayaking, being out here and getting to know, since I, I'm around so much water for the first time, getting to know this ecosystem, which is pretty marshland rich um, through the water's perspective. So that's what I hope to be doing a lot this summer. That's incredible. My last question for you is where do our listeners find you? Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm at LL Cool Jennings because I love LL Cool J. On Twitter, I'm at One Native Soil Nerd. And then I also have a website that's a nativesoilnerd.com. Amazing. So, yeah. Listeners, you are going to find links to where to find Lydia and her work, all the things we talked about and the organizations we talked about in the show notes for this episode. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad that we were able to connect. And yeah, thank you. And that is it for this episode. Thank you everyone for joining us. Links on where to find Lydia and all of the things we talked about are available in the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And if you did, please don't hesitate to smash the like button. It really does help us out a lot. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside. Got to climb higher, I said higher, got to climb higher.